Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 110 of the Leading Wild Green podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Daphne Scott, author of the new book, Waking Up a Leader. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Dr. Daphne Scott, I want to encourage you to join me in Atlanta, Georgia, That's right. Atlanta, Georgia, February 23rd for the Find Your Courage Tour. More information can be found at courageatlanta.eventbrite.com. That's courageatlanta.eventbrite.com. The Find Your Courage Tour is part book signing for my book, Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to Keep Going, part leadership development workshop. Got an incredible roster of speakers. I mean, this is going to be a really, really good event. Now, we started in Washington, D.C., then we moved to Baltimore. We had the stop in sunny Orlando in in January. That was great. That was great. And now we're moving to Atlanta, February 23rd for the Find Your Courage Tour. Tickets are available. Now, these events are small and they're intimate. We anticipate our Atlanta event selling out. So you want to get your tickets now. If you listen to the Leading Wild Green podcast and you know somebody in Atlanta or you know someone who is like an hour's drive away from Atlanta, just tell them, hey, I heard about this event, uh, leadership development, motivation, inspiration is going to be great. And just send them to send them the link to courageatlanta.eventbrite.com. Courageatlanta.eventbrite.com. As a matter of fact, you can just buy them a ticket and gift it to them. All right. We're out of January. We're into February, but people still have resolutions and goals that they're working on. And this this experience of the Find Your Courage Tour will will directly help them with that. So you can check out tickets at courageatlanta.eventbrite.com. That is courageatlanta.eventbrite.com. Okay, my guest today is Dr. Daphne Scott, author of the new book, Waking Up a Leader. And in the book, she reveals that the struggles you're facing originate in your relationships with time, your relationships with money, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with friends, and how you deal with the unknown. Uh, Dr. Daphne Scott is the founder of DS Leadership Life and the Chief Culture Officer for Confluent Health. She's an expert at waking up leaders to a mindful way of leading, and given her improv comedy training, she brings a unique sense of humor to her work, helping merged companies integrate cultures. This is a great conversation with with Dr. Daphne Scott. And we talk about her leadership journey, some of the challenges that she faced and and how to navigate, how to navigate so many things, especially how to navigate the unknown so that you can wake up and be a more effective leader. Here's my conversation with Dr. Daphne Scott. So I'm excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast by Dr. Daphne Scott. Daphne, thanks for being my guest today. Oh, Pierre, thank you so much for having me. And I'm re- I was really excited to be on the show today because I know the emphasis that you're really um, getting out into the world. The message you're getting out is around this, you know, sort of emerging leaders. Um, you know, what were the things we we could look, could have learned along the way, right? Yeah. Um, so I was really excited to have this conversation with you today. So thank you so much for having me. So so let's go back. What made you choose physical therapy? Why why was that on your radar early on? 
Yeah. Well, it all stemmed from, you know, it's a great question. It stemmed from quite honestly, the way I first got in um, exposed to the industry was through my dad who worked at a hospital at the time. He was um, really responsible for inventory and things like that. And he said, why don't you come in and watch this recreational therapist work? It was a rehab facility. So people that were there for a longer period of time. And I came into shadow. I was in high school. I came into shadow this uh, recreational therapist who was very generous to let me watch her. But in the, in the process of that met a physical therapist, it was intrigued. And then fast forward um, about six months, my brother hurt himself wrestling and had to have surgery on his elbow. So um, I was, had just gotten my driver's license and would drive him to his appointments. And one day he came out and he had, I could tell he had been crying and I was like, what is wrong? You know? And he's like, really hurts. And I thought, wow, maybe I should check this out. <laughs> Anybody that can get that much um, you know, uh, response out of my brother. Yeah. But I went in with him to one of his appointments. I said, can I come and watch? He's like, yeah. And so I went in and at that point was just completely intrigued by anatomy and, and the therapist was telling me what, you know, he was doing and what he, what he was you know, moving the bones in my brother's arm and so on. And, and from that point forward, I just really um, found the science very interesting. And then of course, this natural propensity that I had to just help people, you know, and support people. And I saw the success that my brother was having, getting his function of his elbow back. And that started my, you know, first uh, foray into that career of, of physical therapy. So that's where it started. So there's some success that you experienced as, as a practitioner. Uh, what, what was it that happened that, that garnered your interest in, you know, the leadership and the corporate side, the management of physical therapy spaces and not just working with clients directly one-on-one? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, you know, I sort of the thread that's always run through my, um, um, you know, a way that I show up in the world is really that, like, how do I support people to be better and better? You know, how do I support people to, whether that's in their physical health, whether it was in their, um, you know, in their work life and really underneath all of it, I think the thing that I learned from being a physical therapist, one of the, you know, it's all through conversation. Right. And, um, I had to learn how to connect with people in a way that, you know, I'm trying to convince somebody, for example, who just had their knee filleted open like a fish um, to move it and bend it 90 degrees again. And, uh, you know, two days after they've had surgery. So once you sort of can get people to understand, you know, why do they need to do those, that sort of thing when they're in incredible physical discomfort, that same skill translated over to, to you know, it was just working with people. And, I got really interested. I was working for a company that started off as a small company, physical therapy company with about 11 clinics when I started. And we went through a huge growth, um, um, you know, huge levels of growth over a period of time. And I became a manager and this is really where it started. I became a manager, got my first um, leadership sort of role, if you will, formal leadership role. And I was just horrible. I didn't have the skills that I really needed. I didn't understand what was happening at the time. But I knew that I didn't want to continue to struggle in that way. And so I got very interested out of my own suffering, you know, out of my own sort of like, I'm not good at this. I need to be better at it, which was the same approach that I had in physical therapy. You know, I wasn't very good with a certain body part or something. And so you want to be good at it because you're, you know, people are coming to you for help. And I realized that my team um, as well was looking to me for guidance. They were looking to me for um, leadership, if you will, and answers a lot of times. And I just really didn't know how to do it. So I started 
looking for on my own past, you know, reading books, you know, things that we all do looking, you know, at, at, <laughs> at the time the internet wasn't near what it is now. Um, but, you know, looking things up, reading books primarily in, and then finding other people that I could grow with. And I found out about the world of coaching. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a coach was. I hadn't ever heard of it. And that really started my journey um, of trying to understand, like, how do we really, how do we become better leaders? And then how do we create cultures and environments where people can do their work? We spend a lot of time working um, where they can do their work and thrive. And so it really was born out of my own um, incompetence, if you will. <laughs> That's for lack of a better description. There's a point that you describe in your book, Waking Up a Leader, where you have checked all of the boxes uh, professionally. You're, you're making a ton of money from the outside in. You're experiencing great success. But you get to the point where you where you say essentially, I can't do this like this anymore. What what led mm-hmm. up to that that declaration that that something had to change? Well, first and foremost, I I wasn't sleeping very well at all, if at all. Um, and so I really was just paying attention to the levels of anxiety that I was experiencing. That was the first one. The second one, um, and I don't really talk about this in the book as is as blatantly as I will right now, as directly is I really didn't feel that happy. I didn't feel as fulfilled as I thought I would. Um, You know, you sort of set in your mind, like I was living my life like this. Once I have this, then, you know, once I accomplish this, then I can be happy or then I'll relax or then I'll take the vacation. So I really was living a life of, you know, um, not until that, you know, not until this thing happens, will I be able to relax, which is really a setup, right? Um, and so I, uh, first and foremost, it was something that was happening, you know, really with my physical being in that I wasn't sleeping, I, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety. And that was really the call. Um, it, even though I wasn't sleeping, it was a wake up call, <laughs> you know, to sort of paying attention to what was happening. And then once I really started paying attention to that, um, I, I caught on to my own game, if you will, that, you know, waiting for my, I was really accomplishing these things and at the same time waiting for my life to start. And um, it's just, there's so many things in the um, externals that we don't control, right? Um, if anything at all, I mean, we can take responsibility for our behaviors, obviously, and our actions, but there are many things in life that we don't control. So living that way isn't um, a very fulfilling way to to be. So that really started my path of looking at how I was showing up to things. And I like to think of it this way as I was giving to get hmm. quite a bit, um, which is again, a real dicey way to, to, to live your life and to lead your life and to get into leadership is really, um, really um, can create, can really can be a setup for us to have a lot of suffering in our lives. So that was really the first wake up call for me, if you will, um, basically. There are a lot of us in leadership positions who who find ourselves um, in in a similar space, and, mm-hmm. and and sometimes it's it's the byproduct of just these amazing ambitions that we've had. You know, being in college yeah. or starting out in our career, and everyone, you know, the advice we hear is you know take the bull by the horns and climb up the ladder, and and just really conquer. Uh, but you argue that that sometimes we can get caught up in having our ambition really become our identity and, yeah. and you argue in your book that we are not that. Can, can you break that down for us? Absolutely. 
I, you know, ambition and wanting to be successful, I think are beautiful things. And I think first and foremost, desire can be a beautiful thing. If it wasn't for that energy that we have, you know, um, to, to want to make things better and to want to avoid pain, right. We, we would be sort of actionless in some ways, probably. Mm -hmm. So these, and these are part of us as humans, it's something we're, we're endowed with. So that's not necessarily a negative thing. And, and, you know, I love how you say that, um, that, you know, sort of make this argument that, yes, and if we start to believe that we are our role in life, that, you know, I am, you know, this this thing, and then, and therefore, if this thing doesn't exist, then I cease to exist. When we get caught up in the identity, what many people would relate to is the ego. Um, what we find is that the ego is desire. It has an endless, uh, endless um, um, reign of terror of desire. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never satisfied. And therefore we start to get identified in a way with this endless pursuit, this endless pursuit of, I won't be happy until, and, um, that's really how it works. That's what it does. And so when we get caught up in that and we're not paying attention, which is really the whole first part of the book, when we're not paying attention to that's what starts to happen, we lose ourselves in it. And, we start to find ourselves really trying to control things that we can't control. We find ourselves um, in a space of never really allowing ourselves to relax and truly, truly enjoy what we're doing in our lives, truly doing things for the sheer enjoyment of them um, versus thinking that this thing that um, I'm doing at work or this way that I'm being in the world, this title that I have, for example, Mm -hmm. is who I am at a deeper level when we really look at all these things, if, if it were the fact that the title is who I am in my life, um, that title isn't permanent. And this is really the, the crux of the whole thing of sort of the whole um, puzzle here is that nothing is really permanent in our lives. We can't, I can't control what happens in my organization, meaning I can't, I, I'm not the sole decision maker. I'm not the sole, you know, um, uh, person who's going to decide who sits where and what ta- at what seat in the table and that sort of thing for lack of a better metaphor. And therefore, if I start to think that that's going to be permanent, um, when it's not, I'm going to be really disappointed. (laughs) And that's the part where we start to get hooked versus the other option is to pay attention to that. And then to recognize that our work in the world can become something that's really more fulfillment. I like this phrase. um, I keep it in the back of my mind all the time. Learn as much as you can, help as much as you can. And that really shifts the energy for me quite a bit because it keeps me from getting hooked into um, this pattern of thinking that I am simply just one of the roles in my life. Um, I actually fulfill many roles in my life. And when those roles change or shift, which they will, um, then it isn't something that's personal about me. And it doesn't mean that I am less than a person. So um, I think that's really, um, you asked that question really well. And if we look sort of at all these things that are not permanent, then we have to be able to really see that those things will come and go. And that really doesn't have, doesn't make me any more or any less of a person. This connects to a, a dichotomy that you present um, early in your book. Uh, The idea is that if, if ambition becomes the driver more or less, and we've been around leaders and experienced it ourselves where Mm -hmm. things become really transactional. We sometimes get into the place where we're actually like using people and using Mm -hmm. things. 
instead of connecting yeah. and relating. But you 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 present this dichotomy between uh, transactional leadership and and transformational leadership. Why is it so important, especially for emerging leaders, to know the difference between the two? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, first, I think it's important to understand that both need to exist, <laughs> um, and that's really the one of the things that I'm putting forth in the book. I think that um, we get caught up or can get biased one direction or the other and forget that we need both. So that's really one part of it. Again, um, I've had experiences where people, you know, leaders really, for the most part, love the transformational part of leading. Um, and I think there's a lot to that. I think it brings in our spirit. I think it brings in the wholeness of who we are. I think the transformational part really has us have some um, respect for all of us as humans, you know, that we're not these separate entities just walking around as objects, you know. So people tend to like to spend a lot of time there. Subsequently, all, or in addition, we also do need to be able to get things done, you know, um, in our businesses. We, and, and most leaders want to be effective at getting things done. They, you know, I don't know many leaders I work with, for example, who feel good when, who feel good about the fact that they've told, told somebody they'd get something done and then they don't get it done. You know, most leaders, are, they yeah. want to actually accomplish things. So um, it really is that, that path of understanding that we need both. However, I would, I would say, you know, I, I would really um, say that without having connection, with people without really being able to see past. Yeah, we have, the, I have the emails I need to answer and just understanding that on the other side, you know, when I pull up that email, the, there's a person on the other side of that, you know, this is going to go to a human being who has their ho- own, you know, dreams, hopes, and ambitions, if you will, or aspirations. And so we need to really be holding that all the time and how I'm relating to that really, really matters. So uh, it is both. We want both. Um, and we, you know, what can happen when we get stuck in just simply wanting to get the checklist done is we lose sight of the fact that there are human beings here. And um, it's that part that I think for most really highly effective leaders, it's that part that really inspires them to watch. I mean, the first time you have the experience, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was thinking about the first time I had the experience of watching one of my team learn something new or take on a challenge that they might have had a little doubt around. And I was able to support them and coach them through that and watch them grow. I remember the first time that that happened. And that's the human part of leading. That's the part that I think really sustains leaders over a long, long period of time um, at the same time that they're building a business or running a business or supporting a business um, and doing all the transactional things. So um, yeah, I can, I can make a strong argument for the transformational side of things for sure. But I think that's where the richness really lives. And if we get caught up in the transaction, we lose sight of that. Well, I've read a, a, a research article a while ago. I can't remember the source, but it was it was surveying individuals who um, said that they could live without any person to person interaction as long as they had a good wireless connection. And some, <laughs> the article said something about like 35% of the people that they surveyed would be okay with not having any other human interaction as long as they, their Wi-Fi signal was good. And we live, uh-huh. we, you know, we live in this proliferation of technology, which, which makes us so connected, but actually mm-hmm. very isolated. And yes. sometimes we forget that even in the nature of, you know, virtual work and virtual teams, that we need, like we thrive as humans on, on connection. Why is it mm-hmm. so important for leaders 
time to foster, even with the busyness and trying to get the work done. And we're not, you know, we make the argument sometimes hey, we're not here to make friends. We're not here to, you know, mm-hmm. we're here to get the work done. But but some of the arguments that you have is that, you know, we live and thrive on connection and we need to be intentional about it, you know, even even at work. Yeah. Well, um, I think a couple a couple points here are important. You know, first of all, survey is really easy. I mean, people can answer. <laughs> you really don't know until you put it to the test, right? Um, we do, and we do have environments where things like that have been put to the test in a sense that um, we can look at what happens when, and this has happened in prisons quite a bit, what happens when people go into solitary confinement mm. um, is a horrible experience for most people. Um, if, if not all, there's uh, levels of psychosis that develop over time with that. So you can find that in history. Um, in my book, I cite work that was done by Harlow and Bulby, separate scientists who, who looks one uh, scientists who looked at orphans and what happens when they're separated from a caring figure. In other words, we could say that all we need is um, our basic needs met, food, water, and the like, um, <clears throat> and shelter. But we know that that um, isn't exactly accurate from his research. And then Harlow's research with uh, monkeys, which was some of the, some horrific research that was done, actually. But um, when we read that, we start to really get a sense that we need more than just um, food, water, and, and a place to live. So that's our sort of our basic needs. And Maslow even, you know, came up with his theory as hierarchy of needs. And so mm-hmm. we get a good sense of what that's about. More so though, I think, or and with that, and even more so is really looking at our own experience and what happens when we're we're truly, truly not connecting with other human beings. And, you know, it is tempting. I mean, I think this is one of the places when we talk about, um, addiction to our devices, constantly checking our devices. There's one theory that says that we do that because we don't like to be alone with ourselves. And I think there's some truth to that. I also think that there's some truth that um, because of social media now, um, that there's a way that we are wanting to seek connection in some way. Um, we are wanting to reach out in some way. And that isn't talked about as much. I think when we talk about our sort of (laughs) compulsive relationship we can have with our our devices and technology. Um, But I do think there is a way that people want to do that and they're seeking that out. So I I really encourage people to check out their own experience and to see what it's like for them. Um, What does it feel like to have true connection with another human being, which by the way, requires quite a bit of vulnerability. And so when we talk about this in the corporate environment, uh, it is a real different thing, you know, um, to have a group of people come together who, by the way, are going to see each other every day <laughs> who, who um, and come together. And so I do with team coaching quite a bit and then start revealing what's really been happening for them, how they're really feeling about things, how they're really um, experiencing one another. Um, and that is a, that is a game changer in a lot of ways for most people because they find we we can hide, you know, our vulnerability with one another, thinking that that keeps us safe. And what they often find is that when they reveal what's happening for themselves, when they reveal, you know, hey, here's what's been going on with me, and I've been, you know, feeling really frustrated about this thing, or I've been, you know, I felt like, you know, Tom, you really um, dismissed me in the meeting, and I've been, you know, last week, and I've been um, really feeling hurt by that. What they find is people want to come closer. Um, not, they don't want to go away from each other. They actually are drawn closer to each other because they're really getting connected with their own experience and then the experience of others. So, um, you know, I think there's just no substitute for people really checking out their own experience and then um, creating those connections with themselves um, at work and beyond, of course, 
but at work so that they can have, you know, I talk about this, like having a friend at work, you know, yeah. <laughs> a person that you can really talk to uh, is really invaluable. We spend a lot of time in our working life, you know, so um, long answer to, you know, your insight and, and your question there. But I think that if we look at our own experience um, and what it is that, what is it that creates connection for us uh, with other human beings, it's really invaluable to sustain us over a, a long period of time. Another thing that can be a game changer for leaders is having uh, experience or interest in other areas outside of their direct position yeah. of influence. And I was reading in your bio and it says that you you have improv improv comedy <laughs> training. And I, and, yep. I, and I, I want to know, like, what did, what did you develop an interest in that and what's and why should leaders uh, take up an interest or developing a skill that in some ways can be looked at as outside of what they're directly responsible for. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, I always was sort of a funny person, um, you know, gotten that feedback my whole life and um, thought, and I was living in Chicago at the time, by the way. So Chicago is the home of the, of the famed second city where city, people yeah. like Gilda Radner, Jane, you know, or Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, um, and, and on and on, um, have, and it, to this day, folks that are on Saturday night live, many of them come from the second city training center. So I was in Chicago and I thought, I'm really just going to give this improv thing a, a try and, and see if I like it. And turned out I, I loved it and, um, really, really enjoyed it and what didn't, wasn't too bad at it either. So I stayed on that and I loved comedy. I love making people laugh. And the thing that came out of that was the ability and to really do public speaking. I, I mean, I really developed a certain set of skills of listening. Um, it really high sped my leadership. There is a sense of, there is a level of vulnerability you have to have um, as well to be able to perform at that level. So it really opened me up in that way. And um, the, and being a teammate, um, you know, to step out on a stage with three or four other people, you have no lines, you have no script and to really have each other's back to make sure that you're, you're following where the, where, the, whatever anybody's going to say, you have to build on it. That's the, the process of yes. And, which I think is one of the most valuable um, skills and tools that any individual can have as well as any team. If you want meetings to move well, just practice. Yes. And building on each other's ideas um, versus doing the no, but, or the, you know, yeah, but <laughs> putting the butt in the middle of everything. So, um, those skills were invaluable. I think for leaders, um, and my favorite talk on this, by the way, is a, is a, a speech that Steve jobs gave at Stanford university. And he talks about, he tells three stories from his life and he really talks about connecting the dots backwards. And one of the stories that he tells is he was at reading out and he just kind of would wander in and out of classes and audit, you know, really auditing classes of if that he wasn't even really an enrolled student at the time, but he wandered into a um, calligraphy class. And he got very interested in, in the way that sort of different fonts and the different ways that, that these type settings would show up and what they meant and what they stood for and that sort of thing. And then he tells the story, like fast forward five, I think it was five to seven years, he's in his garage and they're building the first Mac computer. And prior to that, computers didn't have different fonts. They didn't have, you know, typefaces, if you will, or settings like that. And it was his background in, in being exposed to that that allowed him to say, hey, look, you know, we should have more than just these green you know, pixels on a screen and these black letters. Mm -hmm. And thus, we were, you know, all computers have this, these different um, fonts and such that we can use. So um, 
I think that story, hearing him tell that story was representative of really my experience of that when I didn't become so myopic and just giving my life to work all the time and really had these other interests that I was able to develop, it came back into my work. It made me even more skillful uh, in a way. You just don't know how it's going to show up. You know, I um, right now I'm really, for example, I'm committed to learning French this year and I played the guitar for a long time and I'm committed to taking my guitar playing to the next level. I have no idea if that will ever support my work or not, um, but it's really fun. And it gives me um, another aspect of my life that I think is, it, that brings fulfillment to my life. And if I'm feeling fulfilled and I'm, I'm full of joy and I'm full of peace within myself, there is absolutely no way that that's not going to have an impact on the people that you're leading. It, it has to. Um, so um, I think those really are some of the, some of the causes that we could create in ourselves to venture out and to, to take stock in things that maybe interest us outside of our work life. The subtitle of your book is five relationships of success and I, in, in some way, we've touched on on all of them, but there there are two in particular before our time runs out that I want to underscore. Yeah. It, and it relates back to that improv comedy conversation. It's yeah. it's this idea of, you know, you espouse learning a different skill and stretching yourself. Uh, but sometimes we yes. have this this fear of of the unknown and we're overwhelmed. What if I try and it doesn't happen or I make a fool of myself or it doesn't turn out the way that I want? To. And sometimes it's our uh, challenging relationship with the unknown that holds us back um, as leaders. As leaders, how should we approach our relationship with, with the unknown? Yeah, well, first recognize that um, it is scary. <laughs> um, you know, when we're on unch- when we're in uncharted territory, when we're um you know, trying to learn something new where our, where our skill set might not meet the challenge when we're um, uncertain and which we are most of the time, actually. I mean, if you really pay attention, what you find is that we're always trying to make sense of our world, which is helpful to a certain degree. We're always trying to put structures around things. Businesses spend a lot of time wanting to do that so they can try to keep things permanent. I think what we start to recognize and and what we can what we can learn to work with though is that we're always in the sort of of realm of uncertainty. You know, um, we really don't know. I mean, I can't tell you right now the next um, three words that are going to come out of my mouth. Right, I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm being present with what I'm saying, but I don't know the next thought that's going to pop into my head. So, um, if we really start to look at reality in that way, we can have we can start to develop a certain comfort with it. Now, that being said, it isn't like we throw the baby out with the bathwater here. So we, I think, do our best to take wise action. We're clear about our intentions. We're paying intent. We're also paying attention to how we impact people. So it isn't just intentions. I think people are generally well-intended, but we also need to pay attention to our impact. How are the things that we're saying and what are the things that we're doing and how is it really affecting people and being willing to recognize that we don't always control that and what can we do if we misstep? What can we do if things don't go well? And I think this is really at the root is that we can always take responsibility. Uh, we can always own and be the owner of our lives in some way, knowing that we have a capacity and a capability to be in response, right? Which is the, the root of responsibility to be in response 
to that which is coming into our world and to that which is showing up. So I think there's a comfort that we can develop <laughs> with, with this unknown experience, um, which is really where we live and spend the majority of our time. So um, it's a practice, you know, it's a, it's a real practice and it, it does require really paying attention to how we're, how we're responding. And things don't always go our way. You know, one of the questions I love to ask myself is who, have I, who do I become when I don't get my way? You know, mm-hmm. when life doesn't show up like I think it should. And um, that's always fun to watch. You know, I want to become more controlling or more definitive or more, you know, I'm going to really make this happen. Um, and there's a beauty to that too. But um, I think that's really the path of being, being aware that because of the reality of impermanence in our lives, um, many things are unknown. You know, we really don't know. And we get a lot of credit for, you know, trying to have the answers for trying to, um, you know, look effective in our life. I think there's some beauty to that too. But overall, we, we don't really, really have any any good sense of what's going to happen in the future necessarily. So it's a practice. Can you, can you share a time where, uh, where you wrestle with this concept or you coach somebody uh, on your team or even one of your, your, your clients through um, embracing the uncertainty and the apprehension that comes yeah. along with, with facing the unknown? Yeah. You know, um, what we find is one of the pathways that I'll use, it's, you know, there's several, but just in, to, to sort of generalize, um, one of the things that we find, you know, this, this, we're saying fear of the unknown, right? So obviously fear is the emotion. And what happens when people are trying to make sense of the world going forward, you know, out in the future, if you pay real close attention, what you find is that we often imagine the worst possible future that we can. <laughs> it's never, we, we often go to this, you know, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Is this person going to become my boss? And oh my gosh, what if they become my boss? And oh, this is going to be horrible. I don't know how to work with this person or I've had to work with this person before and I really don't <laughs> like them that much. And this is going to be a horrible relationship. And so one of the fun games to play um, that I like to play with people is sort of imagining what this is going to be like and have them play it all the way out. Like what's the worst case scenario that can happen? You know, well, I wouldn't like, you know, just giving you a, a rough example, but I won't like this person. We won't get along well. And I said, then what will happen? Hmm. And then they usually said, like, well, then the, my work life will feel horrible every day. And then what will happen? Well, I'll come to work and I want to enjoy it. And then what will happen? Uh, well, I might have to look for another job. Okay, well, then we'll have it. And you can sort <laughs> of just play out this first, you know, these worst case scenarios. And it's kind of fun because people usually start to see like, A, they see the ridiculousness of what they're sort of saying on some level mm-hmm. um, and how much they time and energy they put in this. But secondly, though, on the other hand, they start to see that even if the, their worst imagined sort of thing played itself out, that they would have some capacity to handle it. You know, I'm like, okay, so the worst thing that would happen is you don't like this person. It becomes a horrible work environment for you. You, you know, put your resume out into the world and get another job, you know. Um, maybe there could be something even better for you there. So people start to see on some level that most of our, most of the things that we, most, not all, but most of the things that we imagine are going to happen in the future that are horrible don't actually happen. Um, now that isn't to dismiss people's experience in which they sort of imagine what was going to happen or their, or their, in which their sort of quote, worst fears sort of came true either. Um, because that, you know, things happen in our lives that you know, can be really um, devastating to us at times. But for the most part in, in the working world, I really allow people to just have that moment of fear and to see how they really are getting caught up in their story. That the things, meaning thoughts, that the, the 
things that they have imagined were going to happen really are just living in their head. And that that is actually creating a lot more of the anxiety and concern that they're having versus actual reality, which when we, you know, in conversation, when I boil it right down, um, the reality is they're just a person sitting in a chair on the phone talking to me in the moment, you know, that nothing has actually happened. So um, that's some of the coaching, you know, approaches, that's a little bit more on the cognitive side of things, but some of the coaching approaches that I've used with individuals and teams to see that, get them to see that you're probably in a lot of story right now. And none of these things have actually happened. And because you're trying to make sense of the world, you're trying to make sense of being in this unknown, you're trying to have some certainty um, in a state of uncertainty this is sort of what starts to happen in our minds. It's a pretty common, it's a, it's a pretty given pattern actually. <laughs> so, um, that really shows up for people when we're uncertain. Yeah. You, you mentioned reality and, and <laughs> I, I was, yeah. you know, just reading through the materials and your uh, claim about uh, reality and time, you know, this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, the, the, the clock that, Time is not what you think it is. It's just how we respond to it. And there are some people who are listening. They just kind of perked up and they're, they're <laughs> like, what are you talking about, Daphne? Like, you know, the worst time for me is like the reality rush hour traffic on Monday morning trying to get to work. Um, mm-hmm. is, it makes me mm-hmm. miserable. And I and Friday at five o'clock when I'm off for the weekend, like this is that's my reality. Uh, Mm -hmm. I feel different. Life is different in these different times of day of of my week. But you you say it's more about how we perceive and respond to time than than anything. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, (laughs) it's a really loaded question, but, you know, so I'll talk, let's just talk about our experience of time first. You know, we um, there's a utility, obviously, to time, right? Um, it's helpful. We knew you and I had an agreement to meet at a certain time, right? Today on the clock. Um, and so that helps us organize ourselves. I mean, I could probably use a sundial or some sort of other way of doing that, but this seems to be, you know, something we've all agreed upon to use this thing called the clock. So it's helpful to organize ourselves. Often, though, what people have the experience of is this really this experience of, of feeling like they don't have enough. Um, and it's very, it's a, it's a very interest, interesting phenomenon. I've, I've asked this in groups of people, you know, I have a group of 500 people I'm talking to like, how many of you experience like often regularly not feeling like you don't have enough time. I mean, everyone's hand will go up and um, I couldn't get 500 people to agree on something. <laughs> one thing if I really tried probably, but that they all can agree on in their experiences, what happens. So what we start to see is that there's this way that we condition ourselves mentally, um, cognitively around this relationship to time, often telling ourselves we don't have enough, telling ourselves we're too busy, telling ourselves that, you know, and all those versions of, of those of those thoughts. And then we constrict around it. We start to have this experience of just, it never feels like we are, like at some point we could just run out of time. And that really becomes the root of a lot of our stress versus realizing, oh, I have this appointment at eight o'clock. I have this meeting at nine o'clock. I have another meeting to get to at 1030. Great. You know, how can I seamlessly move through those things and not overwhelm myself? So that that's really part of, of managing the relationship, the transformational part of this. Now let's get into the transactional, that experience that you're talking about of, um, you know, it's Monday, I'm dreading it. I'm going to sit in rush hour traffic. You know, there's a real, um, 
yes, change your relationship to it if that's most beneficial, as well as if you don't have to sit in rush hour traffic, it might be really helpful to change that, you know, if it's if it's something that's um, not enjoyable to you. In a lot of situations, leaders that I work with are what I would call they're over obligated and under committed. So what I mean by that is they've said yes to a lot of things that really are not fulfilling in their purpose, that aren't fulfilling in their mission, that aren't necessarily fulfilling in their role. And that creates this experience of time feeling very heavy and very dense. Um, And what I like to say to people is that you will never have enough time to do the things you don't want to do. And so time starts to feel sort of miserable. And then it does feel like we're living for the weekends. And one of the commitments I had to myself many, many, many years ago was to make Monday feel like Friday. (laughs) So there was a mindset change as well as a very tangible action change. You know, was I really doing the things that brought me alive in my work? Or was I spending a lot of time not doing those things? And what did that mean for me? So those are some of the deeper parts of how we relate to this experience of time and what can happen that can, in the transactional and the transformational, that can lead us away from really enjoying our lives and having Monday feel like Friday. You you make another argument in the book in terms of the excuse of busyness. And I know this kind of goes into how we deal with time as well. Um, a lot of us as, as leaders, we, we, we pride ourselves on being busy, uh, especially, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of the week, especially on a Monday, you know, Monday is where I'm busy. Yeah. I set my week by the time I get to Thursday and Friday, I'm teetering off, but, but you, you make the argument that, that busyness isn't really a thing, um, that we make it out to be, and we should reframe mm-hmm. how we think, uh, busyness in general. Can can you unpack that for us? Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting to relate to the word busy and I'll coach leaders and they'll say, Oh, I'm really busy. I got a lot going on. And, yeah. you know, right. <laughs> you actually hear this quite, quite, quite often in your work too. And it's interesting to ask people what they mean by busyness. And I don't talk about this in the book, but it's interesting to ask people what they mean by busy. Hmm. And it's a kind of a conversation stopper for a second because they're like, uh, well, I have a lot of things that I'm doing. And I'm like, well, tell me what those things are. And so they'll kind of say like, well, I have this going on. I have this and I have this list. I have this project being on my list. you know." And I'm like, well, how are you relating to it really? And what they find underneath this word busy is they are really relating to things from a place of being over obligated um, to some degree. And that isn't always true for everybody. Um, the other side of it to what you were pointing to earlier too, is we have a lot of opportunity. And so people want to take advantage of these opportunities. They do have, they have a lot, might have a lot of things that they're passionate about. You can, you can do, you know, you can have everything you want, but you can't have everything. Right. So, um, they'll take on a lot of these, um, other tasks and projects and things in their excitement. So when they really start understanding that how they're relating to this idea of their tasks, many things are starting to feel like a have to. I have to do this. I have to get this done. I have to send this email. I have to have this thing on my list. I have to do this project. I have to get this um, report done. I have to take go to the kid's birthday party. I have to. And so they're relating to their life from that place and relating to a lot of their tasks from that place. And that creates this um, effect of what they would describe as busyness. 
And so when they unpack the word for themselves, and I would encourage everybody and anybody's listening to us here, you know, really, if you find that word coming out of your mouth, just pause for a second, ask yourself, how am I relating to the things that I've agreed to do? You know, really, am I living in a place of have to? Really, am I really living in this place of fear that if I don't do these things, something bad will really happen? And that creates this effect of, of busyness. Um, now, what you were also pointing to is imagine if you're the person at work who comes in and says, actually, you know, um, I'm feeling really good. I have my list written out. I, I'm getting things done really seamlessly. Things are moving along really well. Um, I'm getting great sleep. I feel really easy about things. And I'd say that I'm, I'm really thriving. You know, <laughs> for people to really talk that way in, the, in their work life, it's sort of like, oh, we all should look like we're really busy. You know, who gets to come in and just have their life be really easy, right? We should all be stressed out. And you're not doing enough if you're not, um, um, you know, coming apart at the seams. And I think there is some of that energy, you know, some of that sort of mindset that we bring into the working world that we all have to look really stressed out um, and overworked to make it make ourselves seem like we're, you know, being really helpful, if you will, that we're really effective. Um, so I think we're getting away from that more and more now. But I do think that some of that still sort of that identity you know, um, of how we show up still sort of lives in the, in the collective too. So, but yeah, busyness, I think it's just really seeing how we relate to the things that are on our list. Um, that I think really is telling. If you could underscore this for us again, what, what, what was the type of person that you had on your mind, uh, as you were writing, waking up a leader and, and how were you trying to connect with them? Yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons I was really excited to be on your show because the person that was in my mind um, is is this leader who, you know, was very similar to me when I first started in a sense that got promoted into their leadership role because they were really good at their original job. Um, and they they got into this first position. They had had a team of people who were looking to them for guidance and support and really had no skills. You know, it was just, and I, this is in the back of the book. I think I, the person's name I put in there was Timmy. The, my people in whenever I use an example name, it's always Stacy or Timmy for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Timmy was a guy who walked really well. His dad watched him walk. He, you know, um, could just, was a really great guy at walking. And at some point his dad just said, you know, you walk so well, I'm going to have you drive the car today. And <laughs> it sounds nuts, right? Like you're like, that's a crazy, that's a ridiculous story. But that's what happens to people who get their, you know, get themselves into a formal leadership role um, all the time. And they're really given no skills. They really aren't given any formal sort of development. Um, and it's just sort of assumed for whatever reason that they should know how to do this certain role in their life. And that could be in a, in a, a work environment, corporate environment. It can be people who are entrepreneurs who start their own business and then suddenly realize as the business is growing, they have to rely on two or three or four people, which happens all the time too, right? Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that's really the person I had in mind who was this person that was really, you know, sort of an emerging leader in a sense who wanted to have additional responsibility, but really wasn't with other people and really wasn't um, given the um, skills to actually do that really well. You yeah. Don't, you don't just write books. You do a whole bunch of other things. You podcast. <laughs> you I mean, you're, 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 you're keeping it all together. How can we keep up with you? First, most importantly, how can we get our own copy of Waking Up a Leader? And then how can we connect with you in other ways? 
Yeah, thanks for asking. So Waking Up a Leader is on Amazon. Um, there's an audio book in the, in the soft copy version, of course, Kindle version as well. And so you can go to uh, Amazon and, and Google Waking Up a Leader, Five Relationships of Success. It's a great place to do that on Amazon. I also have my podcast, as you mentioned, the Super Fantastic Leadership Show. So um, we put up a show about every Friday. A, sh- a new show goes up about once a week. And then um, if people are interested in more development for themselves, um, there's my website, three W's, wakingupaleader.com. And they can see there, the book is posted there, as well as uh, my online leadership um, course, which is a 10-week, 10-module, really, probably a better way to say it, 10-module course that really takes leaders through um, many of the transactional and transformational skills that they need to have to do well. So it, it, I really built that out based on my experience of working with organizations and seeing that they had no reproducible, sustainable way of onboarding their leaders and giving them, like, here are the <clears throat> basic skills that you're going to need to be effective in your role. So um, those are all the many ways people can find me. I'm also on Twitter at Daphne Scott. I love getting messages on there. So anytime anybody wants to connect with me, and of course, Facebook, DS Leadership Life, always happy to connect with people. So um, those are the ways that people can (laughs) find me in all the myriad ways, if you will. My guest today has been Dr. Daphne Scott, author of Waking Up a Leader, Five Relationships of Success. Daphne, thanks for being my guest today. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, thank you so much for your um, very, very well asked questions. So I, I really felt like I got to get to some roots that, um, you know, and provide a little bit more background, which is really, really helpful. So thank you so much. Great conversation with Dr. Daphne Scott about her new book, Waking Up a Leader. I want to encourage you to check out Dr. Daphne's work at Daphne-Scott.com. That's Daphne-Scott.com. And pick up your copy of Waking Up a Leader. There's a lot of us. We need to rearrange. We need to just re-examine, realign our relationships with time, money, self, friends, and how we respond to the unknown. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green Podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.